Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. We continue our study in Genesis this morning. We're not leaving our study just because it's Father's Day, but where the Lord has us is a message that is applicable on Father's Day. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, um, two Sundays ago, we, we, we had a message from a funeral uh, for Sarah as Sarah died in Genesis 23. Um, we had a message on a funeral. Last week, uh, we had a wedding in Genesis 24 for Isaac and Rebecca. And now this morning on Father's Day, we're going to have a message on parenting. For those that were here last Sunday, um, we looked at uh, God bringing Isaac and Rebecca together, and we really looked at it from a real spiritual perspective, where it was a picture of Christ and the church, and understanding kind of some of the, the symbolism, the shadow, if you will, the foreshadowing of that uh, family, Abraham, Isaac, his promised son, and Isaac, a picture of Christ, Rebecca, a picture of the church, and we looked at kind of some of the, the deeper spiritual uh, things, if you will, and today is going to be a little more, uh, we're going to look at the passage a little more literally and practically at the actual lives of Isaac and Rebecca, and some things that we can learn from them. And as we in Genesis 24, we look at Isaac and Rebecca coming together to start a new family, we learn a few things from each of them that their parents did that prepared them to fulfill God's perfect plan for their lives. And we're going to look this morning a message that I've titled, Who Are You Raising? Who are you raising? And we're going to see Isaac and Rebecca and some of the things that, that were instilled in their lives that prepared them to be the people that God wanted them to be. And some of you would say, well, well I don't have children in my home. Um, either God's not blessed us with children or they're all grown, so this message isn't for me. These are things that as we have influence on the next generation in different ways, as a teacher, an aunt, an uncle, a grandma, a grandpa, whatever it might be, a friend, uh, that we should be striving to instill as we can in our lives, and by the way, things that are good characteristics for us to embody in our own lives. What are, directly as parents, what are your priorities as a parent? What are the attributes that you're striving to instill? And if maybe there's some young couples here that don't have children, but maybe at some point God may choose to bless your home with children. What goals do you have? I remember being a newly married couple, probably married, I guess, just for a couple of weeks, and our church had started a new couples class. Looking back now, I just thought about it while I was studying for the, the message this week. Now, I'm wondering if the pastor did that because his daughter got married and he wanted us to learn how to be good husbands and wives. I'm not sure. But coincidentally, the week after we got married, there was a new couples class that was started. And I'm not sure exactly how that all worked out, but I remember the teacher saying something I'd never heard that has stuck with me for some 23 years now, and he was talking about children. And he said, when God entrusts a child to your care, he said, that is an eternal soul that is under your leadership and under your authority and in your home. And he said, he said those words, and it, it brought a, a gravitas, a heaviness to the importance of child rearing. This is not just an experiment. 
These are not just some people that are cute, a little fashion accessory for me to carry along with me and, and, and get some likes on Instagram. These are eternal souls that will live forever, for eternity, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell, that will live a lifetime and answer to God for the lives that they live. And it remind, it, it, there was a seed planted there about the, the priority and the importance. You know, there are many things that you and I do on a weekly basis that are of, not of much eternal value. But you can't say that about parenting. Parenting is of the ultimate eternal value. You are raising a young person, an eternal soul. You're influencing those things, a soul that will live forever. It is of the utmost importance. It has been said, your greatest accomplishment in life may not be something you do, but someone you raise. I remember when we found out that we were expecting our first child, Ashlyn, who's home for the weekend from her summer job. and and and. And uh, we were expecting Ashton, and Tiffany and I had already begun to form our philosophy and our biblical principles of parenting that were going to guide us. And we talked about what type of things would be, um, would be things that we would discipline for, that would be kind of serious offenses in our home. Because you know there's a difference between childish behavior and rebellious behavior, between immature behavior and sinful behavior. There's a difference, and those things ought to be dealt with differently. And, and I, I remember as we were talking about that, we came up with, as I think I was 23 when Ashton was born, 21, 22, you were 21, whatever, we were young, early 20s. And, uh, and we came up with what we called the three D's for discipline in the Thompson home. And uh, these would be the things that if they did that, and we said disobedience, dishonesty, and disrespect. Those were the three Ds uh, for discipline. And so as the kids did something that we didn't like, we could run it through that filter. Now, granted, that's a pretty broad disobedience, disrespect, and dishonesty. But why? Why did we come up with that? We came up with that because our goal before God ever gave us children was to raise obedient, honest, respectful disciples of Christ. Now, we've not done perfectly in that goal, uh, but, but we do our best. That's what we're striving for. And so we even, when Ashton was little in her little pink princess nursery room, we even had put on, on this, and we still had it, I asked my wife to find it, this thing that had her name, Ashlyn Danielle. She doesn't like her second Bible name, Bethiah Thompson. Um, and Bethiah means daughter of Jehovah, and so it says under there, daughter of Jehovah, born July 13th. And I didn't think about it, but this was kind of the checklist of if you do this, you're going to be in big trouble. And we put it just to menace them on their wall, that every time they walked into their room, like, oh, that's right. I could. And we put a rose on it and pink stuff so it looked pretty. But right underneath it, it says the three Ds for discipline in the Thompson home. And there's the verse, he that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Wow, thanks. And we were talking about this on the way to church and our kids. If you ever want to know what faults you have as a parent, just have kids grow older than 18 and they'll tell you, all right? <laughs> And so all the way to church on Father's Day was, let's talk about all the things dad did wrong all the way in our upbringing. And so this was it, and Titus was saying, I would get, and Ashton was saying, I would get sent to my room, and I would look, and we would get mad and say, go to your room so that we could cool down and not try to deal with discipline and anger. And they said they would walk in, and they would look up at that sign. We have one right here. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, it was a fun one. It was basketball. That's fun, right? <laughs> discipline and basketball. That's fun. There's Titus, David, Malachi, Thompson, the messenger of Jehovah. And uh, he that spareth the rod hated his son. Son, I love you, so I'm not going to spare the rod. And, uh, and, and somebody said, you know, I was, I was spanked as a child, and I now suffer from a disorder known as respect for others. And, uh, <laughs> and so we had these up in their rooms, and they were saying they would walk in, and we sent them to their room, and they would look up, 
and they would be like, no, I didn't, wasn't disobedient. No, I wasn't dishonest. No, I'm good. All right, I'm good. Now I'll walk in. And I would be like, which one of the three did you do? And they said this. Ashlyn said one time, I was like, I didn't do any of those. And dad said, that's lying. Now you've done two of them. And so, so if you want to find out what a terrible parent I was, go ahead and talk to my kids after church. But what am I trying to say? We aren't perfect parents, and we're, we aren't done parenting, and the story isn't written on our kids' lives. But I can tell you that the last 21 years of parenting, while not done perfectly, has been done with intentionality on our parts as, as uh, a husband and wife, and understanding that they're eternal souls, they're disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, and, and, and they're going to stand before God one day for their lives, and we're going to stand before God one day for our leadership in their lives. Who are Tiffany and I raising? And who are you raising? Are we first and foremost trying to raise and train scholars, or athletes, or musicians, or entrepreneurs? And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but is our first and foremost goal to strive to raise committed, consecrated, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ? There's a nearly daily prayer that I pray for our five children, and, and a little outline that summarizes our goals. And this one would, if I were starting over again, I would probably print this one up on the canvas, not the here's how you get in trouble canvas, but I would probably print this one up on the canvas in their rooms. But it's a three-part goal and prayer for my, in my life for their lives, and it's number one, that our kids would come to know God. I want them to be believers, followers of Christ, that they would know God as Savior. And to this point of their profession, all five of them uh, have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And then my second thought is that they would come to grow to love God. There's a difference between being saved and then growing in a personal relationship. And at some point, my prayer is that it's not the faith of their fathers, but it's their personal faith, that they know God, they love God. And then my third prayer is that they would live for God for a lifetime. My prayer is that, that the faith they saw in us and the faith that they, they had, have in Christ is strong enough that they'll pass it on to another generation, and then that generation will grow to do the same. And I've already mentioned, I realize that there's a good chance, we have five children, that, that one or more of them may make, have seasons in their life or make some decisions that, that wouldn't be exactly what we would want. They have a free, free will, and they have a sin nature. I understand all of those things, but that doesn't change my daily prayer. And that doesn't change what we've tried and are trying to intentionally do in their lives. And then we pray that somewhere there are five other families with similar goals doing the same thing with their sons and daughters. And if it's our will for our children to marry, that, that, that they will find each other, will marry, and will fulfill God's perfect plan for their lives today, much like Isaac and Rebecca did in our text this morning. In our text today, God had a tremendous plan for Isaac and Rebecca's life in his redemption story. It was through their marriage that eventually God's own son Jesus would come to earth to be the Messiah, the, the Redeemer, the Savior of the world through the lineage of Isaac and Rebecca. But long before they ever met each other and fulfilled that portion of God's plan, their parents instilled some things in their lives that I think are great things for us to consider on this Father's Day. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Genesis 22. We're going to start there, we're going to backtrack a little bit, and then we'll jump over to our text in Genesis 24. I'm going to give you five characteristics that I believe all of us should be striving to embody, to model, to be an example of, and then to instill in those that we have influence over in the next generation. Genesis chapter number 22, verse 
number nine. Genesis 22, verse number nine, the Bible says this is the story of Isaac, Abraham and Isaac going up Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. He doesn't understand why God's asking him to do this. We preached on this three, three Sundays ago. Genesis 22, verse number 9, and they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. What do we have here? And I, we talked about this. It's believed that Isaac was probably in his late teens, early 20s, possibly even, some say he may have been 33 years old at the, the, the same age as Jesus Christ on Mount Moriah. He was definitely not, there are some people that would say, well, he was just a little kid, three or four years old. I don't know any three or four-year-olds that can carry enough wood for an altar on their back up a mountain. I believe as you study it out, he was very clearly a strong young man, somewhere in his late teens or 20s, very clearly could have, his dad was, was over 130 years old, he very easily, I guess, yeah, over 130, or around 120, 130, very easily, physically was stronger than his dad, could have disobeyed his dad, and I see here, the first thing I see in the young man that went on to fulfill God's plan for his life was he was an obedient child. Who are we raising? We ought to be striving to raise obedient children. Isaac could have run, he could have not done what his dad asked, but you see that submission in verse number nine. They get to the place, and Isaac doesn't understand what's happening, but his dad says, son, lay down, and he bound him and laid him on the altar. And Isaac had said, dad, the, behold the wood and behold the fire, but where is the lamb? And, and Abraham doesn't tell him, you're the lamb. He says, God will provide himself a lamb. But what we see in Isaac's life, the young man that God brought the right person into to fulfill his plan, the young man Isaac was an obedient young man. Parents, in my opinion, it is my opinion that obedience is one of the most vital things that you can train and instill from the earliest ages. It was why it was the first D for discipline in our home was disobedience. Why? Because the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number six, children, what does it say? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. What does it say in Deuteronomy and in Exodus 20 and in Ephesians 6? It says, honor thy father and thy mother. This is the first commandment with promise. In the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, there's one that's geared directly toward children, one of the ten. Now, they all apply to all of us, but one that's geared directly toward children, it is to honor. Obedience and honor go along with actions and attitude. And obedience is, is doing the right thing, doing it when you're told with the right attitude. Doing the right thing the first time you're told with the right attitude, that's biblical obedience. Parents, how many times have you been out, or maybe even in your own home, or at a store or a restaurant? All right, I'm, I'm not going to tell you one more time. The kid knows you're going to tell him one more time. All right, I'm going to count to three. One. What are we training? We're training disobedience or delayed obedience. And delayed obedience is disobedience. And what happens, disobedient, rebellious children, if they're not trained correctly in this, they grow up to be disobedient, rebellious adults. And what do disobedient, rebellious adults, what do they face in life? They face pain and heartache and the consequences of their selfish, sinful decisions. Parents, it must be a priority in our homes to, to, to uh, train and teach honor and obedience, respect the right actions with the right attitude at the right time. Isaac was big enough and strong enough, he could have rebelled. He could have run, but he, he could have done what made sense to him, but he obeyed his dad in carrying the wood up the mountain. He obeyed his dad in allowing to be laid down and bound. What a picture of Christ, by the way, who willingly became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. How's the obedience in our homes? Parents, let's work on that if, because you're hurting them 
if you allow that to go unchecked. Number two, what do I see? Who are we raising? Abraham raised an obedient child. Not only that, Abraham raised a child of faith. Look at verse number seven. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and he said, my father, he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Guess what, Isaac? He's asking his dad questions. Here's what he's saying. Dad, God's plan doesn't make sense to me. Can I say, parents, it's all right if your kids have some questions. Dad, why do we do this? Why don't we do that? What does the Bible teach about this? I don't understand God's leading in our lives in this way. That's okay. Dad, this doesn't make sense to me. Why would I see the wood and I see the fire? Where's the lamb? What's God doing in our lives? Look at Abraham's response. Would you read it in verse number eight aloud? Genesis 22, verse number eight aloud with me. Ready? Begin. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Do you think Abraham understood what God was doing on Mount Moriah that day? Do you think Abraham's heart was broken on Mount Moriah that day? Do you think God's leading in his life was really confusing and uncertain that day? But what did Abraham model before his son in the times of confusion and uncertainty? He modeled a true, authentic faith. Are we raising children of faith? Children that see a mom and a dad that trust God when they don't understand what God's doing? Are we raised? And because of Abraham's faith, I think you see in this passage, Isaac followed his dad's faith, and Isaac showed that same faith in his life. And dads, on this Father's Day, I'm not here to beat up dads, all right? Sometimes it's like Mother's Day, it's all flowers and hats and cheesecake, and everybody's like, moms are the greatest. And you can study the statistics of, of greeting cards that are bought on Mother's Day versus Father's Day. And then on Father's Day, it's like, we beat you up, like, you guys stink, you ought to do better. I'm not here to beat up dads. I'm thankful for dads. But I am telling you, biblically speaking, we have a great responsibility as spiritual leaders. Are we raising and embodying and and showing an example of godly faith? Isaac had faith in his father and in God to take care of a situation he didn't understand. And where did that faith come from? He saw it in his dad. Parents, as it relates to our faith and our walk with God, often the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Casual Christians rarely produce committed Christians. As I heard one person say, parents that treat the church as optional shouldn't be surprised when their children treat Jesus as unnecessary. Recently, a study, somebody sent me this week, of 19,000 Sunday church attendees from 112 evangelical, Protestant, and Catholic congregations in 13 different states was done. The survey found that 80% of all, listen to this, 80% of all Sunday church attendees in the United States grew up in a continuously married home with both biological parents. Now I say that, by the way, as someone who was born out of wedlock, whose dad never lived a day in his home, who was raised by a single mom, who will watch this service later this afternoon, and you were led in singing today by a, a man who was raised by a single mom, whose dad walked out of his life when he was eight or nine or ten years old, or maybe eighth grade, I, I forget when Pastor Sammy's dad left, and Orby raised Sammy and Sandy, and, and, and a man that was standing here, it's hard to tell you, describe them by what they were wearing, because they all had the ugly uh, Hawaiian shirt on, but... 
Jay, the man that was standing here, was raised by a single mom and then a stepdad. So I'm not here to cast shame if you're a single parent raising children. Well, my kids have no hope. That's not what I'm here to say. God is a father to the fatherless, and God can make up for the weakness in our lives and the dysfunction in our homes. But what I am saying is for those of you that are married, those of you that are raising kids through the challenging seasons of marriage, it matters the choices you make and this example of faith that you show. Dad, your faith matters. On this Father's Day, I think it's good to remind you that a growing body of research on religion shows that a relationship with his or her father is critical for faith practice. A four-decade-long study followed 350 families, over 3,000 people across multiple generations was published by Oxford University Press, found this. Having a close bond with one's father matters even more than a close relationship with the mother for purposes of faith being passed down and the internalization of religious beliefs and practices. Dad, you matter. Step up and lead the way in faith. Your relationship with God impacts, for better or worse, your children. You matter. And by the way, if you don't have that or you didn't have that, you're not doomed, as I've already mentioned. One in five attendees in the survey grew up in a home that did not remain married through childhood. But these studies remind us of the deep spiritual impact that a father can have. Dads, who are we raising? As one faithful preacher said, if I teach my son to keep his eye on the ball but fail to teach him to keep his eyes on Christ, I have failed as a father. Are we raising children of faith? What's our priorities? Obedient children and children of faith. Skip over, if you will, to Genesis 24. Genesis 24, where we were last Sunday, and we're going to see the life of Rebecca and a few characteristics in her life. I don't have time to give a lot of review from last week, but just a reminder, Abraham, Isaac's dad, sends out his servant hundreds of miles away and says, go find a wife that where we live, we live in a, in a wicked, corrupt culture. There are no ladies that are going to be the right kind of godly, uh, faith-filled wife for my son where we live. So go back where we're from and find somebody that loves God and find the right one. So he sends, this is in the days of arranged marriages, he sends his servant to go find Rebecca. And, and we saw... Uh, that, uh, that he was looking for a lady with some specific attributes. By the way, young people, teenagers, and young adults, this story is a great reminder that it matters who you are and who you are becoming and what you do long before you ever find who you're supposed to spend the rest of your life with. Rebecca, Rebecca was led to Mr. Wright in the midst of her monotonous, daily, unsung, unexciting daily routine. Isaac was not a knight in shining armor that rode on, in on a white horse. She found her, her, her husband through an old servant who rode in with 10 camels. Not the stuff fairy tales are made of. And she was going to the well to get some water. As I've told our daughter Ashlyn, and I've mentioned to our kids, focus on being who God wants you to be and he will give you who he wants you to be with. What was it about Rebecca that caused the servant to know that she was wife material for Isaac? Look at verse number 14, Genesis 24, please. Verse number 14. And let it come to pass, this is the servant saying, that the damsel, he's talking to God, to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. By the way, camels drink a lot. This was probably 50 to 100 gallons of water. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, with, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. Verse 16, and the damsel was very fair to look on. 
a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again into the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. What's the story? Eleazar, we we don't know for sure it's Eleazar, but many believe it is. Abraham's servant comes to this land and he says, God, I don't know how I'm going to find the right one. They don't have dating apps in this country yet. I'm not sure I'm going to find the right one. And God, I I need you, when I come to the well, I'm going to ask a girl or a lady, a young lady, for water. And if she says, you can hear some water for you, and I'll give water for all 10 of your camels, then I know that's who it is. And what do we see here? What's the third attribute of who Abraham had raised in Isaac and who Rebecca's parents had raised in her? Number three, they were hardworking children. Rebecca was willing to go above and beyond. She was willing to to, to do things when nobody else was watching. She was willing to help somebody that she didn't know, that she didn't know could do anything for her, was just a stranger that she saw at the well. But when no one was watching, she was a young lady of character who went the extra mile, was willing to do hard work, was willing to serve people at great inconvenience of herself. She She was a hardworking person. By the way, that doesn't happen on accident. Her parents had challenged her and allowed her to do some hard things. She took care of daily responsibilities. By the way, way, parents, can I just say this morning, it's good for kids to do hard things. It's good for kids to learn how to work hard. It's good for them to have chores, to learn responsibilities, to be given expectations to contribute to the family. It's good for them to get jobs and pay for some of their own stuff. To have a part in paying for their first car is not a bad thing. To even help with some of their college education is not a bad thing. Their first home. I'm not saying parents can't or shouldn't help, but it is good for our kids to have some skin in the game, so to speak. They will learn to appreciate things more. It's amazing as our three oldest have started working in the last several years. It's amazing as we go to the store or to the mall. It's amazing when dad's paying how many things they need. And now that they have money, I say, hey, dad, I really need, oh, cool, yeah, I'll drive you. Bring your wallet. Yeah, we'll go. We'll go to the mall, and yeah, I can drive you over this before they had licenses. Now I can just say, yeah, that's fine. You know where the car is. Go ahead and go get what you need. Well, no, but are you buying, and they'll ask sometimes, we'll be in a store, and we'll see something like, oh, I really like that. And oh, yeah, that's nice. You should get it. And they'll be like, are you buying or am I buying? (laughs) And you know what's amazing? When they're buying, it's amazing how their needs dwindle. The things they need don't seem so important. Any other parents had that same crazy phenomenon happen in your family? The needs seem to go down when it's their own money. It's okay to let your kids pay for some stuff. It's all right. In our culture, we seem to elevate and strive for ease, comfort, and safety above almost anything else. We say things like, I want to provide my kids with a better life than I had. And that's not a bad, that's the heart of a parent. I get it. But you know what we most likely, most of the time, what we mean when we say, I want to give my kids a better life? We don't mean, I want them to know Jesus more. I want them to be in church more. What we mean is, I want their life to be more comfortable, for them to have more stuff, for them to have more safety. And I want you to stop and think about your life. The season where you grew the most, where God taught you the most, where he molded you the most, aren't those almost always the hardest seasons of life? The things that you would not wish for in the moment are the things that shape you the most often. 
And you know what we do as parents? And again, I get the motivation behind it, but you know what we do in our parents, in our parenting, is we try to eliminate any possible hardship for our kids. And what we're doing is we're eliminating many of the opportunities for growth and for maturity and for them to learn what it is. Because guess what? You can eliminate hardship as much as you want for 18 years. You can't eliminate it for the rest of their lives. In our society, in our culture, we, 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 we live in a society with a victim mentality where someone else is always to blame for my failure. We've given out participation trophies for so long that kids think breathing is enough to deserve everything they want. We've even come up to, with a term to describe people like that. We call them now snowflakes. What do we mean by that? Their makeup is so fragile, so weak, they literally can't face any difficulty without needing a safe space. Previous generations are like, what do these words mean? Why? Because often their parents allowed them to walk through some hardships. And, and again, I'm not saying abuse, I'm not saying neglect. What I am saying is you don't need to be the helicopter parent that hovers over, swoops down on the fast rope to save the day every time your child is struggling. You don't need to be the bulldozer parent that goes in front of them and, and wipes out every obstacle. You need to be the loving parent that walks alongside of them as they face the obstacles. You can talk to them and guide them and give them ideas and pray with them. Them and cry with them, but you don't need to be their savior. You need to point them to the one who is their savior, because that's how they grow in their relationship with him, and that's how they grow as young people. Hardships are good for your kids. For a couple generations, we bowed to our kids' every whim, excusing their every flaw, shifting blame for their every failure, and we wonder why they can't face hardships in their adulthood, why they're still uh, living and in, 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 in depending on parents into their decades-long uh, life. Hardships are good for your kids. You don't need to run to the principal's office every time your kid has a conflict on the playground. You don't need to shoot off an angry email every time your kid fails a spelling test. You don't need to have a word with every coach because Johnny didn't play enough minutes in the game. They're good for your kids. Why? Conflicts teach them how to deal with others into adulthood. Disappointment in athletics teaches them to get into the gym and work harder to, to deserve more opportunities. Failing a test teaches them to better prepare and study for the next one. Be careful about that spirit. No, but don't, don't prepare the, the path for the child, but prepare the child for the path. And it's a danger for all of us. Are we raising hardworking kids, mentally strong, physically strong? Ann Landers, my wife sent me a clip yesterday, a, a newspaper article from decades ago, great, 12 great uh, pieces of advice for parenting. But she said in that column on parenting advice, she said, do not try to protect your child against every small blow and disappointment. Adversity strengthens character and makes us compassionate. It's good for them to learn to work hard, to save, to budget, to know the pain of a conflict in a relationship, a breakup, a, a failed test, a disappointment where a coach mistreats them. And again, I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about criminal activity. What I'm talking about, hey, have you ever, those of you that have been in the workforce, have you ever had a coworker mistreat you? Have you ever had a boss not treat you fairly? It's kind of a universal part of the human experience, am I right? Where's the training ground for where they're going to figure out how to deal with that? Not by you fixing it when they're 12, 14, 16, by you guiding them to learn to deal with it themselves. Let them be hard workers and go through hard things. 
Rebecca's parents did not shy away from allowing her to do hard things. It's good for our kids to learn, to work, to save, to budget, to know the satisfaction that comes from a job well done, from a long day's work, from getting out of their comfort zone, putting the PlayStation controller down, putting the iPhone away, and learning how to work on something they don't feel like doing. We're having fun this morning, aren't we? (laughs) Happy Father's Day. Buckle up for the next one. Two more points. Verse number 16. And the damsel was very fair to look upon. Do you see it in verse 16? The damsel was very fair to look upon. What are the next two words? A what? That's what I thought. Nobody knows it. Genesis 24, verse 16. And the damsel was very fair to look upon. A what? Virgin. Who are we raising? We have to be striving to raise pure children. Parents, we can't control everything our children think, see, or do. But it is our God-given responsibility to teach them the right things to think on and help protect them from having access to anything that they want. We ought to do our best to teach them that their bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, and God deserves pure hearts and pure minds and pure bodies. Their minds and their bodies, we ought to teach them, and their sexuality are not fluid, experimental canvases for culture and science to do what they please. We ought to teach them, the Bible teaches, that they are created as binary individuals. God created them male or female, and the Bible says that their sexuality should be expressed according to the principles of Scripture between one man and one woman for life within the bonds of marriage for a lifetime. I realize culture isn't teaching them that. I realize that's misogynistic. I realize that's not, that's not real p- politically correct, but it's still biblically correct. And the the world, the flesh, and the devil can teach them what they want, but parents, are we teaching and doing our best again? They're adults, they're going to make their own choice, or they're teens, and they're going to make some of their own choices, but it ought not be without us fighting for them and telling them these decisions will hurt you, and this path will bring you regret, and this way will bring scars, and follow God's plan. It's always the best way. Parents, are we discipling our kids? Are we discipling our children in this area of purity because the world is ready to to do that if you aren't. What have they seen in thy house, parents? We would never let people walk into our home and begin to just swear and take off their clothes and do all kinds of things, but we'll put it up on the TV and allow it on the phone and the tablet. Parents, do we have any guidelines in what kind of content we're allowing into our children's lives? Can I encourage you, parents, I don't have any toddler kids, but don't just hand your toddler or elementary age child a tablet and let them spend hours unsupervised on it. I was talking to a pastor a couple of weeks ago, and he said his daughter has struggled at times with same-sex attraction, and she struggled with suicide at one point. And I talked to him, I said, and I know the family, and they're a wonderful, godly family. He served the Lord as a pastor for nearly a quarter of a century. And I said, tell me where that came. And he said, we didn't know it, but we bought a Kindle for her that wasn't connected to the internet. And there was a sample download of another book that started teaching these. And she downloaded a sample, didn't even buy it. She couldn't buy it. And this sample download taught different things. And she got in in her mind and she began to research some of that on her own. And it's been a journey for 10 or 15 years. She's now into her adulthood, still seeking to live for God and follow his plan. But it's been, and I said, does she still struggle with some of those things? He said, I think she'll struggle with some of them for the rest of her life. We hand them, we hand them access to those things. And children's entertainment, even children's entertainment that's being pushed on them is an agenda that is anti-God and anti-Bible. If you're my age or older, how many of you remember Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was one of the most well-known children's shows. How many watched it at some point growing up? What was What was children's entertainment teaching some four decades ago, about 40 years ago? 
You know, everybody's fancy. You, me, some are fancy on the outside. Some are fancy on the inside. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. Boys are boys from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Girls are girls right from the start. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. Only girls can be the mummies. Only boys can grow up and be the daddies. Yes, sir. Everybody's fancy. Everybody's fine. Your body's fancy, and so is mine. Somehow. Somehow, somehow that was accepted truth nationwide 40 years ago, and by the way, the last 4,000 years. And Mr. Rogers spoke more biblical truth than some pastors are willing to stand up and say today. But we've been enlightened in recent years, haven't we? In every other civilization and generation, they were caveman bigots who didn't understand the endless spectrum of genders. By the way, did you ever stop to consider that the B in LGBT shows us that sexuality is a binary thing? Food for thought, go ahead and think about that one for a minute. The B in their own alphabet shows that it's a binary thing. There are only two. How would that Mr. Rogers song that he sang hundreds of times on the air go over on children's programming today? I wonder what harmless things, and this is why I say this, parents, don't just think, well, it's just harmless children's entertainment. There's any, the world is discipling your children. Are you? Wonder what the, wonder what one of the most popular television shows on the Disney Channel and Disney Plus today for two to five-year-olds, for our precious, innocent toddlers. Nothing wrong with a few dinosaurs on Dino Ranch. That's a good show, right? I wonder what the dinosaurs on Dino Ranch are teaching us. T-Rexes have a nest too, but those aren't eggs, they're rocks. So that's why they want to be around other dinosaur nests. These dino daddies want eggs of their own. They want a family. Aw, they'd be great dads. There must be something we can do to help them. There is. There are lots of eggs that need loving parents to raise them. We have a T-Rex egg back in the hatchery that needs a home. <gasps> we can give the egg to them. I wonder why the T-Rex daddies can't have their own eggs. And again, I, some people, you're getting political, Pastor Ryan. No, I'm getting biblical. This is intolerant hate speech, Pastor Ryan. No, this is biblical truth speech. And we as parents, we need to take a look at what are we teaching and what are we allowing into the lives of our children. When I was a kid, Sesame Street taught me how to count, and Elmo taught me my letters, and the Cookie Monster taught me to eat chocolate chip cookies, lessons that I've carried with me the rest of my life. But two weeks ago, Elmo felt like he needed to teach kids about a different combination of letters in the alphabet. Hi, Elmo and I wanted to share that everyone is always welcome on Sesame Street. This month and every month, we want to uplift and celebrate our LGBTQIA family, friends, and communities. Yeah, that's right, Miss Ariana. <laughs> From our Sesame Street family to yours, happy pride! Elmo loves you. 
And I love you, Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, dads, they give you one day in June. You know who takes the rest of June? Somebody else that wants to infiltrate. And again, Pastor Ryan, this is hate speech. No, I don't hate anyone. I heard a great clip from a pastor this week that says those that are pushing an ungodly agenda, they create in their own way their own binary saying Christians must either, if you don't affirm us, you hate us. And this pastor said, but as a believer, I can do neither. I cannot hate you and I cannot affirm you. The Bible does not allow me to hate you for choosing a lifestyle against the Bible, but it also does not allow me to affirm your lifestyle that is against the Bible. And this is something that is coming all over our country and in our homes. I do hate sin and the devastating effects that always come when we choose our way over God's way. I hate the way a generation of young people are being deceived to believe that God's plan is bigotry and hatred and that doing the exact opposite of what God created is love. What was accepted as universal truth on Mr. Rogers' neighborhood 40 years ago, now pastors are scared to state 40 years later, well, this pastor wants to go on record that God's word is very clear about gender, sexuality, and his plan for his creation. Parents, what are they teaching your toddlers? What are you teaching your toddlers? She was a virgin. Neither had any man known her. She made a choice on her own, but somewhere there were some parents that taught her some things. It wasn't she was a virgin and thought she should become a man. She was a virgin and no man had known her. There's a reason they're fighting for drag shows in preschools and elementary schools. It's not about education of an alternative lifestyle. It's about indoctrination into a godless religion. Parents, don't just buy your child or teen a smartphone with no instruction, accountability, or involvement. I said this before, we did a family technology seminar. I said, if your young person has a smartphone and you have not dealt with inappropriate use of that smartphone, there are only two options. One, you have the greatest teenager in all of America. Or two, your head is in the sand. There's no other option. I've dealt with thousands of teenagers, including my own three. And guess what? And I'm thankful that I'm aware of not too deep, addictive situations, but every, including their parents, by the way, all, everyone in our home, there are five people in our home that have cell phones, we have all used that phone in inappropriate ways on some level. And if you, we give, we, we, we tell our kids, you can't drive our car till you go to driver's ed. Why? Because it's a dangerous thing that could hurt you and hurt others. It could destroy your life. But we give them a phone with access to everything in the world, and there's no guiding, there's no training, there's no accountability, there's no structure. When was the last time you checked what's happening in text messages and in direct messages and in that Instagram account that you don't know they have that's the fake one? and you're following them on their real one. When was the last time you checked into those things? And I get it. We can put as many rules in place, and God has to get a hold of the heart. But what I'm saying is, while we're fighting for the heart, it's not a wrong thing to put some guidelines up to try to keep them on the straight and narrow. Parents, are we trying to teach and train pure children? We give them access to all of this and, and, and wonder then what happened to our sweet, innocent little babies. Who are we raising? Are we doing our best to raise pure-hearted children who know God's plan and fulfill God's plan with their lives? I could keep going. I'm going to give you one more and wrap it up. Number five, look at verse number 23. And they said, whose daughter art thou? So Eliezer says, who's your dad? Tell me, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, she bare unto Nahor, uh, which she bare unto Nahor. 
She said, moreover unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. They had raised, number five, a servant-hearted child. Rebecca, they just met this person, and she has this hospitality, this is Eastern culture. He says, hey, we're from a long ways away. Do you guys have room for us, or do I need to go find an inn or a hotel or something? And she said, let our family serve you. We've got room. Again, that doesn't happen on accident, because guess who all of us serve by nature? By nature, all of us serve ourselves. And she had been taught, our family serves people in need. Parents, are we raising servant-hearted children that are looking how they can use their lives to impact others around them? We're a generation of self-centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed parents raising a generation of self-centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed children. Do our children ever see us serve? Do they ever see us give to others? Do we ever challenge and teach them to live for others, to befriend the kid at school that doesn't have any friends, that sits by himself at the lunch table? To do kind things for their siblings at home? Who were Isaac and Rebecca? Obedient, faith-filled, hardworking, pure-hearted servants. Obedient, faith-filled, pure-hearted, hardworking servants. Are we raising obedient, faith-filled, hardworking, pure-hearted servants? None of us have a perfect family, and all of our kids are going to have to make their own choices. But we as parents, we can set some priorities and some intentionality in teaching obedient, faith-filled. That'll change our schedule. It'll change our budget. It'll change our activities. It'll change the content in our homes. It'll change what we watch and what we scroll and what we follow and don't follow. Obedient, faith-filled, hardworking, pure-hearted servants. Who am I raising? On this Father's Day, let's recommit ourselves to raising children according to God's word for his plan and for his glory. As Joshua so famously said, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let me make it clear one more time. I don't hate anybody in this room. I don't hate anybody listening. And I don't hate anybody that's living a lifestyle that I would not condone or believe is scriptural. I do hate the lies that are being peddled in our society deceiving people. Because I deal with the other end of it when they come to the end of those choices and say, now I'm broken. I'm scarred. It didn't bring the fulfillment or the happiness I thought it would. And I want to challenge us as parents. Let's recommit at the altar today. Maybe some of us want to come, husbands and wives or children, and come pray. God, help us to be a family of obedient, faith-filled, hardworking, pure-hearted servants. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.